So let's Four, verse one. When Saul returned from the following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as, that sh- as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my Lord and King. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see you today. Um, When we find ourselves in desperate situations, as at some point in life, most all of us will, Uh, There's a temptation to take matters into our own hands. 
you know, taking matters into your own hands. That's a really popular theme in modern storytelling. There's the vigilante cop, right? There's the former FBI agent. There's the rogue spy who will do what his superiors won't do and will make sure that evil is defeated, that the helpless are defended. Authors have made fortunes telling these kinds of stories. Jack Reacher. Tom Cruise is not Jack Reacher, by the way. Bad example. The new Jack Reacher, the big guy, a better Jack Reacher, the former highly trained operative who's now a nomad out on his own and always finds ways into trouble and is forced to rely on his training. Sounds like my life. It reminds me of himself. Um, we, <laughs> we love these stories. We love these stories, and they're really fun stories. They, they, they tell us about how to handle our own problems, and, and they speak to something really deep in the American psyche, uh, our individualism, our self-reliance, taking matters into your own hands. Desperate times, after all, call for desperate solutions. But when we apply that thinking to the Christian life, Taking matters into our hands usually actually doesn't work so well. In fact, it often makes things worse. What do you do? What do you do when you find yourselves in desperate situations, in desperate times? In our story this morning, David is in a desperate situation. And he finds himself with an opportunity to take matters into his own hands What will David do? How do David's words and actions in this story reveal God's purposes and God's will for our lives thousands of years later? It might not seem like it, but this is very relevant stuff. It's relevant because some of you are in desperate situations. Some of you are in desperate situations right now, this morning. I mean, life is really challenging. Life is really challenging hard a lot of the time. It it presents us with all manner of difficulties and problems that we just aren't sure how to handle, doesn't it? Will we take matters into our own hands? Some of them are just in insolvent marital situations. You're stuck and you're trapped and you're hurting. What should you do? Some of you are in the middle of business ventures that are not going the way you had planned, and you're wondering what the next step is. Some of you are being mistreated at school or in a peer group. You feel like an outsider. You feel damaged. You feel alone. You feel scared. What's the response? Our impulse to respond on our own is so, so strong, isn't it? And yet, again and again, the story of the scriptures points us forward. The scriptures tell us we should not take matters into our own hands, but rather we should seek refuge in the Lord. Man, that sounds so spiritual. Such an easy thing for a pastor to say on a Sunday morning. But what does that look like? What does it look like to go to God for our defense? To go to God for our help? Let's, Let's just see how David's life helps us think about that this morning.
This chapter breaks up very nicely into three parts. David's opportunity, David's refuge, and Saul's remorse. So let's go first into David's opportunity. Let me catch you up on what's happening in David's life. At this point, he's been on the run from Saul for about 10 years. David spent most of his 20s uh, in the wilderness hiding as a vigilante from the king. And over the years, Saul's treachery and Saul's malice have gotten progressively work, worse. Excuse me. So Saul's anger has sent David in chapter 21 to live with the Philistines. In chapter 22, to hide in another cave. Yes, he's hid in caves before. He's sought help from priests in other towns. And Saul has hunted David. That's been his first and really only priority. He murdered a group of priests in a little town who had helped David. He's abandoned fighting Israel's enemies, the wars he should be engaging in, to chase David down. Which is exactly what happened at the end of the prior chapter, chapter 23. And our story picks up where Tisa began reading with David in hiding from Saul again in the wilderness of En Gedi. Now this area, you can still go visit it. It's a barren area, but it's filled with caves. It actually looks a lot like the Texas Hill Country, but all these caves house natural springs so that refugees can hide out there for a long time and have the resources they need to eke out a meager existence. And, and David is hiding in one of these caves. He has about 600 merry marauders with him. This is David's Robin Hood period. I like to call it. Saul, however, has spies and his spies find out where David's hiding. They inform Saul. And so Saul derails his army, all of them, 3,000 men, outnumbering David five to one and goes looking for David. And now, in God's providence, the tables finally turn. This is David's opportunity. Did you hear what happened? Saul goes from being the hunter to the hunted. He's a bit older now, and as, you know, older people often tell me, never pass up a chance to use the restroom. You know, if you go into Bucky's to grab something, make sure you go to the bathroom on your way uh, before you leave. And, and that's what Saul has to do. He's got to go. And the Bible, you know, the Bible will be honest with you. Saul has to take off his clothes to go to the bathroom, or at least his robe. And so he goes into this cave thinking he's safe to relieve himself and of all the gin joints in all the world, of all the caves in all the world. It just so happens to be the exact cave that David and his marauding merry men are hiding in. And his men see Saul and they see David's chance. He's finally getting his opportunity, his opportunity for vengeance. He can end this war now. Verse 4. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you. They're almost singing. This is the day. This is. The day. <laughs> behold, the Lord said, behold, I will give your enemy into your hands and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. By the way, the Lord never said that. They're quoting a part of the Bible that's not in the Bible. It's like when people say the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. No, no, the Bible doesn't actually say that. But these men think it's obvious what David should do. This is a no brainer. Take matters into your own hands. So David sneaks up near Saul 
and, and he cuts off a portion of Saul's royal robe. He doesn't kill Saul, right? Although he easily could have. And even this act, did you catch it? It immediately plagues David's conscience. Look at verse 5. David's heart struck him. He realizes he's gone too far. And then he tells his men, verse 6, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And the author tells us that David, quote, persuaded. He persuaded his men with these words. That word translated persuaded literally is the verb. He tore them apart. He tore them apart. This would have been an intense scene. Imagine it. An argument, a stare down going on there in the back of some, of some ancient cave. David, he knows that he must not harm Saul. And he, resolve it. he resolves that he will not harm Saul. Why? David tells us, because Saul is the Lord's anointed. Yes, Saul's a murderer. He is. Yes, Saul's a liar. Yes, Saul has acted like David's chief nemesis and enemy for years. But Saul is still the king of Israel. You military men and women know that, uh, at least I've heard this saying, that when you salute your superior, you're saluting the rank and not necessarily the man or the woman. It's exactly what David's thinking here. David knows that God has promised him the kingdom, but God has never told him to take the kingdom. And so David says, I can't do this. And he feels guilty even for chopping off part of his robe. He says, I cannot kill the Lord's anointed. Do you see the significance of this event? Here's what's significant. Listen, David is being tempted. Tempted to take matters into his own hands. Tempted to take the shortcut, to strike Saul once, one thrust of his sword or spear, and then become king. Finally get what's been promised with the only exception or with the only rule that he would incur blood guilt if he does it. David, in resisting this temptation, in resisting this shortcut shows one of the chief reasons why he and not Saul is qualified for kingship. And in fact, given this story's place within all of Scripture, David is reenacting here. He's reenacting the story of his and our first father, who was also tempted to take the shortcut. Adam, when tempted, listened. To the voice of the serpent who said, basically, take the shortcut. You can be like God now. You can have all that God has promised now. You can have it and you can have it now. You can have it today. Unlike Adam, David sees the temptation for what it is and resists. David's story here points us backward. But more importantly, David's story, as it always does, also points us forward. David here is acting as a pre-Christ. Like David, Jesus found himself 
in the wilderness as a young man. Like David, Jesus was tired and had been hunted by his enemy, not Saul, Satan. Like David, Jesus is tempted to take the shortcut, to take matters into his own hands, to take the easy way out. Satan says to him after 40 days of fasting in the middle of nowhere, if you really are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you will bow down and worship me, all these things that you see from the top of the temple, I will give to you. I'll give you the kingdom now, Jesus. Forget about that whole suffering servant bit. Forget about that dying bit. Forget about that being unjustly arrested bit. Shortcuts. You don't have to die, Jesus. Just take over now. Take matters into your own hands. And like David here, Jesus, in an even greater way, is able to resist. He takes refuge in God. He remembers God's promises. He resists taking the easy way. And in Jesus' resistance, we have redemption. Because in the gospel, his obedience becomes our obedience. Even though we are disobedient. Our life is based on Jesus' life. If we've connected to him in faith, our failures are canceled before God and before each other. And all that God sees when he looks at us is Jesus', David's greater son's victories. So much, so many of the temptations we face are temptations to take shortcuts. Temptations to take the easier way. Temptations to take matters into our own hands. Impatience. Don't wait for the Lord. My timing, not God's timing. Remembering Jesus' victory over the devil aids us. And seeing David's example does too. So what's the alternative? What's the alternative to taking matters into our own hands? It's to take refuge. To take refuge in the Lord. Let's look at that secondly. We've seen David's opportunity. Now we see David's refuge. Instead of seeking vengeance against Saul, David leaves it to the Lord. We see that in the speech that he gives to Saul and Saul's army there in the middle of the chapter. But before we get to the speech, it's instructive to know that while David is in this cave, one of the things he does is compose songs. Two of which we have in our song book, the Psalms. Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 explicitly tell us that they were written by David in the caves of Engedi. We read Psalm 57, part of it, as our call to worship this morning. But listen to how the psalm opens. Here's what David writes. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high. To God who fulfills his purposes for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen to Psalm 142. Written in the same context. Verse 5. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge. My portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry. 
for I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. David trusts. He exercises faith in God. He runs to God as his refuge. But here's something I want you to see. Taking refuge in God is not an exercise in passivity. It is not an exercise in passivity. It is not curling up in a ball and letting someone continue to harm you or abuse you. David courageously comes out of the cave, doesn't he? And he confronts Saul, which was a risky endeavor, given that he's outnumbered five to one and that Saul's a maniac. And he speaks the truth to Saul in love and in the speech David makes. Look at it there. David defends himself repeatedly. He pleads his innocence. And he asks God for justice. He says, basically, Saul, I could have killed you. This is proof that I am not after you. And he says it in front of Saul's entire army. Verse 11, I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. And again, verse 15. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hands. You see the balance here? On the one hand, on the one hand, taking refuge in God, trusting in God is not sitting back and taking it from oppressors, from abusers, from people who seek you harm. Listen, listen to me. If you're in a desperate situation because of someone else's sin against you, it is absolutely right and good and just and important for you to defend yourself. I mean, it's one of those lessons you don't learn in seminary, but here's the facts. The moments in which we sometimes, as pastors, are being the most pastoral and in which we as elders are doing the most shepherding is when we tell wives that it's time to get away from him. It's time to move on. It's time to end it. It's time to take care of your children. Don't trust him. They don't teach you that in seminary, by the way. Defending yourself, protecting yourself is not contrary to trusting God. But, on the other hand, taking refuge in God means not taking vengeance. Not taking vengeance for yourself. Not taking matters into your own hands. This is what Paul instructs in Romans chapter 12. He writes there, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. David could kill Saul here. And by the way, he's got a lot of good reasons to kill Saul, doesn't he? Saul's tried to kill him. Saul's hunting him unjustly. David has pled his innocence. But he knows, David does, that that is sinful. He knows it is wrong. And he resists the temptation. He leaves the vengeance to God. He asks God to show up and vindicate him because he is innocent in this matter. Vengeance doesn't pay. Vengeance doesn't heal. Vengeance doesn't cure. One of the men who knew that most was the 20th century Jewish Holocaust survivor, Elie Wiesel. Some of you might know of him. He recently died. His most famous book was entitled Night. And uh, Wiesel uh, lost his mom 
when he was a very young boy and was put a number of years later into a concentration camp with his father and with his brother and with his best friend. And uh, he watched his father treated like an absolute animal by the Nazi soldiers. He watched his brother and his best friend hanged just for sport because that's what the Nazis felt like doing that day. And he somehow survived these atrocities and got out. And much later in his life, he set up a foundation as a man living in New York City. The foundation was dedicated to telling stories of Jewish life post-Holocaust. And the foundation raised money and they had a fund of approximately $15 million. And the fund was run by a man named Bernie Madoff. And um, of course, when Madoff's scandal became public... The foundation collapsed entirely as a result of his fraud. But still, Elie Wiesel was opposed to the idea of vengeance. And in an interview he did with The New Yorker, when asked why he is not angry and out for vengeance, he says this, quote, How are we ever to disarm evil and abolish death as a means to an end? How are we ever to break the cycle of violence and rage? Can terror coexist with justice? Does murder call for murder? Despair for revenge? Can hate engender anything but hate? I'd like to just encourage you pastorally, my dear friends. When you're in desperate times, and I really don't mean this to sound saccharine and sentimental and easy for me to say ish. Let me encourage you, though, to trust the Lord and resist the temptation to take matters into your own hands. Ask God's Spirit to help you. Ask for community to believe with you. Know that God will come through. He is just. He is good. He is faithful. He's given us Jesus, and he's given us Jesus. He's going to take care of us now. Desperate times call for desperate measures, but not desperate measures that you undergo yourself but rather desperate reliance on God's justice. We see David's opportunity. We see David's refuge. And then finally, Saul's remorse. That's what closes out this chapter. And um, next week, we're going to move forward a bit into uh, future stories in David's life. And and Saul's going to be a figure of the past. And so I want to conclude this morning just by wrapping this up and tying it together, hopefully, with uh, just a brief meditation on the tragedy that is Saul's life. Uh, What is it that makes Saul's life tragic? Is it his wasted potential? Maybe, maybe. Is it that he's just a man who's overwhelmed by David's charismatic and magnetic leadership and lost his way? Possibly. But, But I think mainly, Saul's life is tragic because he refuses to the end to abandon self-will. He would never lay his life down before the Lord. He would never repent. And in these verses, there's a lot of remorse. But there's no repentance. And there's a significant difference. Look, I mean, verse 16. Remorse is everywhere. Saul cries. Oh, so sorry, David. I'll never do it again. He admits he's been evil to David. Verse 17. 
He says out loud in verse 20. Yeah, David, the kingdom's going to be yours. He's very emotive. He uses strong emotional language. Swear to me, Dave, don't kill my kids. We've all heard stuff like this when we've been victimized, by the way. Saul's externally very sad. He's externally very sorry. He's externally very remorseful. But you know what he never is? Repentant. He refuses to give himself up. How do we know that? Because he never stops taking matters into his own hands. With disastrous results, by the way. I mean, in two chapters, chapter 26, we see an almost exact replica of this chapter. Again, Saul goes after David to kill David. Again, David spares Saul. And again, Saul blubbers publicly in front of him. Oh, I'm so sorry. I promise I'll never do it again. But then in chapter 28, Saul, when things are going bad, rather than seeking refuge in the Lord, goes to a witch. Yes, there's a witch in the Bible, a real witch, who really does call up a real spirit, Samuel spirit. Kevin can tell you all about that text if you have any questions about it. Um, Saul has an opportunity to say no to temptation, to resist But that's where he goes instead. He always takes the shortcuts. He always takes matters into his own hand. He's always self-reliant and self-trusting. He never really makes the Lord his refuge. And we know it not by his words. We know it by his actions. He's given one opportunity after another. And by the end, his heart is so malformed and so distorted That it's too late for anything but a tragic life. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century British preacher. I read this week a story he tells about uh, the early years of his ministry. There was a man who for years, you know, it's one of those neighborhood churches where everybody kind of knew the pastors in those days. Especially a guy as famous as Spurgeon. And uh, this man knew of Spurgeon and for years he called Spurgeon a hypocrite and he mocked Spurgeon and he denounced Spurgeon at every opportunity he had. And eventually this man became very ill and was lying on his deathbed. And when he was lying on his deathbed, he called for Spurgeon to come visit him. And Spurgeon came to see him and sat by his bedside and listened to this man. And Spurgeon very clearly talked to him about Jesus and about Jesus's gospel and about his need for repentance and faith. And the man was kind Finally. And the man apologized for some of the things he had said about Spurgeon, finally, but he still would not repent. He still would not lay down his own desire for self-rule. And here's what Spurgeon wrote of that encounter. This man had, when healthy, wickedly refused Christ. Yet in his death agony, he superstitiously sent for me. Too late. He sought to enter a closed door and was not able. There was no space left for him then for repentance. For he had wasted the opportunities which God had long granted to him. David's example and Saul's example, even in this one chapter but throughout this entire narrative, present us with two options that all of you face. Two ways to live. One is the way of Saul. Hold on, whatever the cost, to self-rule. Hold on, whatever the cost, to self-reliance. Hold on, whatever the cost, to self 
trust. Desperate times call for desperate measures. Take matters into your own hands. When time and again the Lord asks for your trust, you rely on yourself. Don't be like Saul, who when given the opportunity to trust the Lord, took matters into his own hands until it was far too late. There's secondly the way of David, who was a sinner, who was a failure, who made many mistakes, but was willing to abandon self-will, who was willing to abandon self-rule, who was willing to run to someone other than himself for refuge. The way of David and the way of Jesus is to run to God for comfort, to run to God for refuge and to find safety. He has already lived and died and been raised to rescue you from the enemy, to restore you to God by his blood. And he has promised that no matter how desperate things may become in your story and in your life, he will never, ever leave you or forsake you. He is the rock. He is the cave that we can hide in. Not ourselves, but Jesus. Take the way of David, not the way of Saul. The Lord is our refuge now and forever. Let's pray.